History Lecture 81, Rabbi Blyweiss. Today we're talking about the Rambam. Whose dates, as I remind you, he lived less than a half hour, 1135 to 1204. Uh, those are the secular dates. Um, his is one of the families that descends from uh, Rebbe, and therefore if he descends from Rebbe, he's, Rebbe counts himself in the line of Beis David. We remember that his, uh, Rav Maimon, his father, was a student of the Rimigash, and um, the legend has it that as the Ri lays dying, Rambam is six, and he gives a bracha to young, young Moshe, and the Rambam said later that um, all of his achievements later on were due to this bracha. Rav Eliyashev has a similar story. He was a child, he was brought to the Chafetz Chaim, and he said also he felt that all of his accomplishments in life were due to the Chafetz Chaim. <coughs> the Rambam, when he reached the age of the old age of 15, in 1150, he had what he considered a complete chinuch at that point, which is more or less probably like most of us feel at the age of um, maybe 150. <coughs> so he was 15. Um, when he was 13, remember there was those pesky almohads, the, the radicals, the fundamentalists, who uh, made life difficult for the Jews, including Ibn Ezra. So um, they revolted around Spain. And uh, so this is in 1148. Um, they rebelled against the Moors, who were moderates. Uh, how do you know about the Moors in history? You've heard of Othello? Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's, this is the time period. Uh, and they'll, at least for the time being, derail what the Jews sometimes consider their golden age in Spain. Not a happy time. It's more or less restored, but uh, it's the beginning of, of, uh, of bad times for Jews in Spain. Um, many Jews in Cordova either convert or leave, those are their options given, convert, die, or leave. Um, they, when, you, you, I don't know if you realize this, when they say convert, die, or leave, leave, which seems like the only plausible option, is, um, means leave, and leave everything behind too. Yeah, I don't know if you realize the implications of being a refugee, and um, among, among them is you often die as well, without any means, without any food, without any clothing. So uh, that, that also often for the Jews, as they, as they fled from Gullus to Gullus, wandering Jews, uh, they had to start all over again, and sometimes they couldn't. <coughs> the Rambam's family flees. They go to Fez, Morocco, and there's a feeling of um, going full circle. If you've been following, if you've been keeping track, who is from Fez, Morocco? The Rif. The Rif, who fled Fez because of, of, of problems that he had, persecution, and he went to Cordova, where he taught the Rimigash, and now, you know, the, the Rav Maimon and his family is now fleeing, going back to Fez. And when they come to Fez, they find it's usher to learn and keep Torah there, according to the decree of the, of the non-Jews. Uh, just when you thought you'd, uh, you'd, you'd come to a safe haven, and um, there was worse, there was also a false messiah, a messianic figure, in town, making all kinds of mischief. It was under these circumstances that Rav Maimon wrote a book called the Igeris Hanachama, the work, the, the letter of consolation to be able to uh, give comfort to the local Jews, Chazik them. Uh, the Almohads later come to Morocco, so, you know, Shkayak, he fled them and now they're here again. 
Um, and so at this point, the Maimon family flees to the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, and they live there, wandering around the mountains for about 20 years. It takes about a generation for the Almohads to fall, and um, many people had given up and converted to Islam, and now they want, to, they want to come back. They'd like to rejoin the Jewish community formally. Um, what is their status as Jews? Are they Jews? Yeah. They're Jews. Once you're Jewish, you could be an apostate Jew, but a Jew still a person remains. And um, they'd like to come back, and there are many Jews. If you remember this dynamic, remember Rabbeinu Gershom's attitude? They want to come back. He greeted them with open arms. They can have an Ali and Shul, all kinds of takanos to try to, to try to smooth their path back to making tshuva. Um, but but and, and we saw back then the Sephardi uh, the Sephardi Jews generally re- criticized this, um, and there were indeed many Jews who were resentful. They say, you know, we through Messias Nefesh kept you know kept uh, our, our our tradition, and, and you, you 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 jumped ship and abandoned us, and now you'd like to return. Rambam's attitude was like Rabbi Gershon. One finds this, that the greater the Jew, the, great, the bigger the heart, the uh, greater the ability to overlook people's uh, weaknesses. One of Rambam's first works is what's called the Igeris Hashmad that addresses all this. It addresses this period, Shmad, you remember we talked, do you remember what we called the period of the Shmad? We've had a few. There was one, there's one really famous one that, we, that is often referred to as the, uh, the, the Kufas Hashmad. Um, after Bar Kokhba, where uh, persecution after after the ten martyrs and Rabbi Yeshu ben Korcha, um, in fulfillment of the klala of the, of the promise of the klala, he uh, he hears leaves rustling, and he's terrified. He thinks that the soldiers are coming to get him. That was the uh, that was the nature of life. So under these circumstances, the Rambam is writing the Igeris Shmad, and he ha- he has in there all kinds of shilas from Spain and Morocco and elsewhere. Where, um, where Jews want to know, what do we do? We need guidance. And there's an anonymous letter that endorses conversion to uh, Islam. That, um, please, if you'd like a, a, little, a little glass of caffeine, by all means, there are cups, there are fresh cups in that bag. Wait, there's caffeine? Where? There's a letter endorsing con- Jewish Jews conversing, converting to Islam. Now, the Rambam's view was that Islam um, is not idolatrous. It's not a vodazara. Um, but he responds to this letter vehemently. He says, no, no, no. You, don't, you never convert. That's wrong. But, uh, but it's not a vodazara, he concludes. Um, he says, what if pushed to the wall... They say, die or convert, Rambam Paskins, you don't have to die. He says, it's not, since it's not a Vodazara, it's not a Yaharig Valyavor. Wait, so, if it's not a Vodazara, you don't have to die, then why so many people die? Well, this is Islam. When it comes to Christianity, it is considered Yaharig Valyavor, um, and therefore it is a problem to convert. Um, the Rambam is, has this view. His view on the status of Islam is more or less accepted by most post-scheme. We said this, we've talked about this before. His view on this last point is not necessary, and we've said this too, the Ritva and later the Radvas and others say, even if it's not a Vodazara, at that point they concur, but they say it's symbolically giving up the Torah and, and belief in the Kaddish Baruch, who a person should, should uh, 
die rather than convert to even Islam, which is sadly a relevant question today with, uh, with radical Islam. Um, best, Rambam concludes, concludes, he says you shouldn't convert, try to use whatever alternatives you have to escape, to try to get away from there, and Rambam himself certainly, certainly sought those, those, those options. Can you imagine though, living in the mountains? Uh, how did the Rambam become the Rambam, one of the greatest Jews of all time? You know, on the fly, while he hid in, in, in caves, dank caves with creatures and critters, and they wouldn't even let us crawl around in the night. This is how people lived. Around the year 1168, so that would mean that's the Rambam's in th- about 33, he arrives in Eretz Yisrael, he comes to Akko. And it's, for the Rambam, for any serious Jew, it's the fulfillment of a dream of a lifetime. Everybody wants to be in Eretz Kodesh. He and his family celebrate the date of his arrival in Akko, and then later Yerushalayim, and then finally Hebron, the second holiest place in the world. Um, those become family holidays for generations. Meaning R- Rambam's own family acknowledged these days as great days, even though his time in Eretz Yisrael is quite limited. The Crusaders, this is deep into the, uh, the, the, the Crusader period, make it impossible for him to remain too long. Uh, so he leaves Eretz Yisrael and ultimately sets sail down the Dead Sea for, um, for, for uh, Egypt. And on his way down the Dead Sea, do you remember this idea? I, this is one of my favorite things I always no, mention in guiding. You remember this? No, 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 no. As he's sailing the Dead Sea, he completes his parish Mishnayos on Meseches Uktzin, the end of the, uh, in other words, the end of, uh, of, of Shas Mishnah. That's just a great image. Yeah. You know. What's that? I don't know. Oh, why, why is that? Uh, actually, the Dead Sea used to be, uh, first of all, the only way to get down there, they didn't have roads back there, so the main way was by boat. And um, it's actually pretty, makes, makes a passage much easier than on foot or, or even sometimes. So, so you know, when you, a lot more water. Yeah, you have more water. You get to sit in a boat and travel and sit and write, the, put your finishing touches on parish. Yeah. Uh, he reaches Al Fayun, which is uh, southwest Cairo of today, and finally he comes to Fostat, which is old Cairo. Cairo today is a vast, one of these uh, urban metropolises, but in, back in the day there were different districts. And he lives in Fostat for much of the rest of his life, and he describes what life is like there. We'll, we'll talk about that too. Uh, first, a quick comment on this first early masterpiece, the Perush Mishnayos, which was written in Arabic, and for almost anybody else, it would be considered their magnum opus, their masterpiece. Uh, for the Rambam, it was simply one of many. It's unusual. He certainly explains the Mishnayos, but unlike most of the commentaries on the Mishnah, he also includes lots of practical halacha, which is hard to do because, you, you know, it's hard to leap from the Mishnah to Halacha. Usually the process involves learning the whole sugi up in the Gemara and then with the Rishonim. But the Rambam, Rambam skips it and goes right, right to the punch, right to uh, the sugi. He, um, it includes, among other points of, uh, of, of fame, well, something I just mentioned in Gemara earlier today, the um, Yud Gimel Ikare Emuna, main principles of faith that are more commonly known as the 13 
Ani Ma'amin, that many people say after Shachris in the morning, you can find them in the back of your, in, in the back of Shachris, in your Sidur, Ani Ma'amin Bemun Shlema. It's worthwhile going over those. If you don't do it daily, do it periodically as a refresher course. And if you've never been through them, by all means, you, sh you should take the, you should take the uh, very brief uh, opportunity to do so. What's the purpose of the Shloshe Ikari Emuna? It's kind of a new thing. It's interesting to us that in uh, most of our classic, classic literature, certainly not in the Tanakh, but not in, neither in, do we find anywhere in Medrash or in any of the Talmud, that Chazal set out 13 clear statements, declarations of our beliefs. So why then does Rambam feel a need? Because the times call for it. And much of what we see, the achievements of the Rambams are very particular to his times. Remember, these are times where the Muslim world is, is dominant. Um, the Muslim world is, uh, is features in it, in part of the culture, a heavy dose of philosophy, of deep thought, and it's confusing, and people don't always know what do, what do they stand for. Honestly, it's not so unlike our times where people are confused and they don't know the fundaments, uh, the main principles. And so the Rambam is there spelling it out in very clear terms. It's a day, it, these, are, these are days of, of um, when Aristotle and Aristotelian philosophy are also extremely influential. Rationalism is the mode of the day, meaning that, you know, Cleosamesim and belief in Mashiach aren't necessarily within that mindset. And the Rambam says in no uncertain terms, and, and other principles that certainly did not, that were, did not toe the Aristotelian line. Yeah. And in it, he also emphasizes the, the major changes between Judaism, like the differences between Judaism and... Absolutely, and it's clarifying, especially to the, to the, to the Jews who were influenced by the Karaites and didn't know what do we stand for? What you know? In, in contrast with these Karaites, who were who were still very influential in these days. Um, certainly, Christianity, Islam are all over. It's 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 Judaism's statement of theology. Um, the content of the thirteen would be debated. Maybe one of the most famous is the Sefer Ikarim by Rav Yosef Albo. He tweaks and debates certain principles. Um, the, they would inspire, these 13 principles also inspire a later famous piyut called Yigdal, uh, written in the 13th century, meaning after the Rambam's time, but just shortly by Rav Daniel ben Yehuda of Rome. Uh, you know Yigdal, right? Yigdal, right? And, and you see it, it's not quite the Nusach of Rambam, but it's certainly based on that. Principles that we just that we talked about, and um, often people begin the morning by saying Yigdal, by by by, by speaking about Yigdal. Um, Rambam signs his letters from this period, this later period in his life. Um, Moshe ben Maimon Hakosev Haover Yom Al Shlosha Lovim, your loyal writer who's transgressing every single day of his life on three negative Torah precepts. And we, we've mentioned this here as well, the whole concept of Jews going back to Egypt. I mean, last week's parsha. finally, we just, we, we officially tomorrow left. Tomorrow's we, right, right, for sure. Although not by much, you have to admit. The um, please pass the cups around, Eli. Maybe like some a, a cup of cold co cola. Okay, great. Pass it on down. The uh, was that? 
I'm not. I'm just trying to be nice. People feel at home. That's all. I did. Okay. Um, so, the, 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 this is a big deal. Why did Jews live in Egypt as they do over history? Um, and I'm going to read the question that's asked by Rav Yaakov Emden, although many ask a question the Rambam, but here's, here's, how, here's how the Ivitz puts it. He says, I can't believe that the Tzadik Talmud Chacham would write about himself this way for no reason. You know you're not allowed to say Lashon Har against yourself. What do you mean? You're, you're transgressing three lobby every day, so get out of there if it's, a tra- if, if it's a transgression. But this is, we're talking, this is not just any old person, this is not just any old Tzadik. We're talking about the Rambam himself. Part of the way to understand the laws of Lashon Hara is if you understand the laws of, of Nezek, of damaging, because uh, speaking ill about people is a kind of damage. And just like you cannot damage, just like you cannot, uh, you're not allowed to damage, injure somebody else, you're not allowed to image your, yourself. Shmor Snafshecha, the Pasuk says, you have to take care of yourself. You can't, um, no self flagellation anymore, Daniel. For you. The only injury if the person is injured. If you don't care, <coughs> so it's not, just, it's not just about what you care and what you're willing to do. If it objectively it injures you, as for example, the Rambam, who's theoretically, if he writes this way, his own reputation is being sullied. His own Selim Elohim. And remember, when you're a Gadol Torah, you don't just represent yourself. And it's not just, do you know that the Gemara says that a Gadol's not allowed to be Mochel on his Kavod? Because it's not just his Kavod. He starts to represent something far greater than himself. He represents Torah. So how could the Rambam, who for, you know, is arguably one of the great Jews of all time, denigrate himself, which by which he's really denigrating his Torah? What about someone like me? What am I not? Not much yet, but we're working on it. Yeah. Most of us are. One day. One day we'll get there. So Rav Yaakov Emden says like this. He says, it must be that he's warning others so that chet harabim won't be talui bo. Must be that he's warning others so that other people who sin similarly and go and live in Egypt, as many Jews would do, including his descendants, um, wouldn't depend on him. He's then saying, don't follow my example. I'm here for whatever reasons that I'm here, uh, but it's not like you should use me as a, um, as a proof text, even though people would. Um, here, are, here are some more explanations. The Kaftar Beferach says, um, it was very likely that the reason Rambam was there is he was forced, he initially, he was forced uh, to be there as the doctor of the king, either Salah Hadin or Salah Hadin's son. Um, Others say that Tzitz Eliezer brings a, brings, a, brings a position based on the Ritva that it may not be a lav, diraisa anyway, and um, what he's expressing in his letters is simply metaphorically uh, mourning the ongoing Gullus and the symbolic prop- problem of being back in Egypt. Um, Rambam does paskin that you're allowed to go to Egypt on business, and it's entirely possible that when he was there, it was simply sojourning. He was so, sojourning there temporarily, and then he got stuck. He may have been anus. So, um, in any case, we know that many other Gedoli, many Jewish communities would justify living in Egypt uh, for, for uh, up until today, and today the, the, the community is, is uh, dwindling in a, in, a, in a significant way. The Vilna Gaon writes that all of us are in the Torah. Did you find, did you find yourself in the Torah yet? We're all there. We're all there. So, um, 
one mentions this when talking about different codes, Bible codes and such. Uh, this isn't the Bible code per se. It's simply um, based on the pasuk that we just had in uh, the Parsha before last, in Parsha's um, Bo. It talks about Moshe Rabbeinu going down to Egypt, and it explains, Leman Ravos Mofsai Be'eretz Mitzrayim, Hashem tells him, the pasuk tells us that why should Moshe go back to Egypt? to go warn Paro and to bring the Jews out in order to increase my miracles in the land of Egypt. Well, if you pay attention to those words, Laman Rivos Reish Mofsai Mem Be'eretz Beis Mitzrayim Mem The Pasuk spells Rambam's name by acronym. Uh, computer searches through 80,000 words of the Torah show that this is the only four-word sequence of the acrostic of Rambam. And it couldn't be more perfect. Meaning, Moshe <laughs> goes down to Egypt from Eretz Yisrael, that's both about Moshe Rabbeinu and about Moshe ben Maimon, in order to perform miracles in Egypt. Well, indeed, Rambam himself is a walking miracle, and what are the miracles he performs in Egypt? Ooh, just the Mishnah Torah... The uh, and, and some of his Igeris Teman and some of some of his masterworks. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to, but you might have asked the Vilna Gaon. He apparently had this knack. He's not around, is he? No. Um, Rambam, through his life, was uh, lifelong. Um, not only was he his brother, but he was his dearly beloved friend in Rusa, um, and he named David. And David and Rambam had what we would call maybe a Zvulun Yisachar type relationship. David was a businessman, even though he was also a Tamil Chacham, and he supported both families. And around the year 1169, meaning shortly after they get to Egypt, on a, some kind of a trip out in the Indian Ocean, David tragically drowns. And it's the arguably the hardest time in the Rambam's life. He wept bitterly. He was bereft. Um, they discovered a letter in the Cairo Geniza. We've mentioned the Cairo Geniza, an old attic, a repository of holy uh, documents, lots of them, uh, discovered about a over 100 years ago, and included was a letter um, in which it seems to be the Rambam himself writing as follows. About eight years have passed. I'm still mourning and hard for me to accept consolation. He grew up on my knees, referring to his brother. He was my brother. He was my student. Um, David died, the greatest lost. He also happened to lose the family fortune and the prospects of making more money in the future. And so now Rambam takes on this responsibility in his old on his own shoulders and starts to support both families. And he goes into a field that he had knowledge of. He becomes a physician. As we say, it might have been that he served the Sultan himself, Salahadin, or perhaps Salahadin's son. It's also one, one suggestion is that it was another official's but clearly the Rambam had, uh, was, was there, had the means of making a parnasa, but it was not easy. Um, as he describes his life, he actually, in one letter we have to the translator of the Moran of Uchim, of the Guide to the Perplexed, who is also a good friend, his name was Rav Shmuel Ibn Tibbin. Rav Shmuel wanted to visit the Rambam in Egypt, and the Rambam tried to talk him out of it in the letter. And he says, I live at Fostat, Fostat, uh, the Sultan is in Cairo. They're far from one another. I have to travel every day. My duties to the Sultan are very heavy. I must visit every day early in the morning. 
When I return to Fostat later in the evening, I find the antechambers filled with people. I mean, I don't know about you. I'd be there every night, too, if I knew the Rambam was coming home there. Uh, he says it's Jews and non-Jews. Everybody recognized the Rambam's greatness. He continues, nobles and common people, a mixed multitude awaiting me. Then patients go in and out until night, and sometimes even until two hours or more into the night. Uh, when the night finally falls, I'm so exhausted I can barely speak. No Jew can, I have no time for anybody to have a private interview with me except on Shabbos after Shachris. He says, so I, I can't imagine that you'd be able to come. I would have no time to spend with you. The Chazal say, Chachamim, ein lahem menucha ba'olam hazeh. Our great, our great uh, sages don't have any rest in this world. And uh, I, I don't know about you. Is this familiar? Uh, have, you heard, have you heard about the Rambam before? A little bit. A little bit. Does this add a certain um, pathos, certain poignancy? When you hear about, you know, I mean, all, our sages had these incredibly hard lives every day. You know, we, see, we kick back and, and munch Doritos, right? They, I mean, you know, I'm just using the, using the image there, right? They, they, the Rambam didn't have a moment's respite. <coughs> yeah, please. What would be? Oh, um, there are three separate prohibitions. Um, seemingly redundant, except that they're, they're there in the Torah because they count as a separate law for forbidding Jews from going back to Egypt. And, and they're understood as, as including living in Egypt, not, not necessarily traveling through. One which don't return back to, it, uh, to Egypt, don't sell horses. There's three that it says mm-hmm. don't live in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, giving, I'm giving bullet point highlights of the Rambam's life. My challenge, as with so much in this class, is to limit what I don't talk about. Rambam lived one of these just, um, you know, you should all have such lives of, of consequence and importance. Every chapter is, 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 is massive. I'm going to talk about now the Yemenite community and what the Rambam does for them, which is yet another huge, for any other person, it would have been, you know, if for the next paragraph, if this was the only thing that you accomplished, you'd make it into my history notes. For the Rambam, it's just one of many footnotes. Are you? Um, about the whole Egypt thing, about how long would you have to stay in Egypt? Usually, by this and other questions about establishing residency, it usually is 30 days. 30 days is understood. That comes out, let's say, with Hilchos Mezuzah. Are you a guest or, or, or you know, are you staying in a place long enough that you'd be required to have a mezuzah? It comes up, let's say, uh, in, in, in seemingly in, in less central halachos like the Minag Ashkenazim of Maus Chitim. There's an obligation or Minag to, to give uh, money at the at Rosh Chodesh Nisan to poor people in your city. Well, where is your city? And again, the post can talk about what's your city after 30 days. But you can hear it comes up lots and lots of uh, areas of halacha. So it would, see, it would seem to, to pertain here as well. Days, the 30 days that you were talking about doesn't apply to the business thing that you were talking about. If a person's there temporarily and with no intention of saying, perhaps you, that, could be, that could stretch. Like if you're a foreign person. I don't know. I don't know exactly. It's a good question. At what point would you be considered living there? It might be a Shiloh. You know, there are Jews. I, I know of Orthodox. Jews. I mean, we had a student back in Bevisera whose father was the American. Was he? Was he the? Uh, I forget his title exactly. Maybe, maybe he was the uh, the ambassador um, in, in to Egypt, uh, uh, modern Orthodox Jew. 
um, and he was there, stationed for several years. And even though it was, a, it was a, you know, by definition, a transient post, yeah, but that's living. So I, I, I remember talking to the student and asking him if his father had a heter. And I don't think the student had any idea. I don't think his father had any idea that there was such an issue even. The um, Yemenite community that we've seen before, I'm going to just mention it very briefly. They have a tradition that we can't verify. Uh, they can't verify and nobody can verify. Um, that Their community dates all the way back, I think I mentioned this, to the days of Shlomo HaMelech, that perhaps Shlomo had sent some Jews down to Yemen to seek gold and silver for the base of Mikdash, and uh, some Jews simply stayed there and never left. That's a tradition. Um, we certainly know, we're aware of a viable community um, from the Talmudic period, probably earlier, but certainly from the Talmudic period. There's a community there. The reason we know about it is they were, um, even though I, I, I don't have the map, do we, I, the maps that I gave you on Bavel, I don't think they covered the Middle East. Um, but it, anybody who does have a mental image of the Middle East, uh, Yemen is on the, is on the Saudi, uh, the, Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula, and um, it's remote, but not inaccessible. And there clearly was contact between Yemen and the Jews of Yemen, as remote as it was in those days, uh, and the center of Jewish life back in Bavel. Why is that important to mention? Because the Masora traveled to Bavel. If you don't have connections with what's going on in religious life, if you can't ask Shilas, among other things, you have no way how to give a kosher get al pihalacha. And what are the ramifications? Something that came up recently for us. If you don't know how to give a kosher get al pihalacha, there's going to be, well, mumzer is going to be the option, but what's the, what's the immediate, before there's mumzerus, there's adultery. They're going to get divorced anyway, and the women are going to maybe remarried anyway, and the, those, those new marriages will be adulterous. So clearly they were in touch, and they got guidance. We know they were also in contact during the Gaonic period. But by 1172, they fell upon hard times. They were disconnected. I mean, it's hard to be in an isolated community. Daniel, do you, you ever research uh, the Ebonite history? We'll talk about it here. I, I have a few. Um, we'll be tracing it. I mean, I try as best I can to go around the world. I'm not, I'm not consist uniformly uh, um, uh, consistent on this, but in many of the communities, I do my best to try to bring to light what, what their history is. Yemen was a very large, uh, important community that, that produced many, many, I mean, relative to its size, many gedolim, many prominent figures. I mean, they're going to come later. Uh, I'm thinking of Rav Shlomo Adami, the Malachas Shlomo. I'm thinking of the, the Rishash. Uh, and, and, and really a long, long list, but yeah. I didn't talk about Cochin, and we talked about it. Ilan and I had an exchange. I haven't talked about everything in history. This is not a comprehensive history. Uh, we would be, if, if that were the case, we would have barely left Gan Aiden at this stage in the year. Um, and I, what I am trying to do is prioritize, and I admit, any history, mine certainly, is biased, and, and uh, you have, it has to be selective. I'm doing my best to try to give what a Torah Jew today must know to be knowledgeable. That's, that's, how I, that's my way of selecting what we're selecting. And that's, we, um, Elon's referring to an earlier, really interesting story of a, of a non-Jewish king who converts to Judaism, apparently, and um, becomes this, this brave warrior. But other than being incredibly cinematic, Right, and its potential in telling a rousing good story, it doesn't really leave us one way or the other. It certainly doesn't add to our Torah history, as right now what I'm focusing on really does spell out a lot that affects at least the Yemenite traditions in their Torah. So now there, at this point in 1172, they got some problems. 
One is they've been many generations isolated and they're shtickle ignorant of the basic halachos, which is uh, dangerous for any Jewish community. Um, the second problem that they have is um, they, well actually, I should say, on the first problem, their ignorance leads to an internal problem within the community. There are kofrim in their midst, heretics, and they're not, the, the scholars and the, the leaders don't have the wherewithal to be able to refute the, the, uh, the heretics adequately. So that's one problem, that's an internal problem, and they have an external problem. Shiites, uh, who dominate Yemen, are persecuting them. And they're in political turmoil and in uh, a stage of, and a period of, of oppression. The Yemenite community definitely knew, knew from a lot of suffering over the years. And um, to address this, the Rambam writes yet another of his great works, the Igeris Teman, the letter to Yemen in 1172. He writes it in Arabic, and he's addressing these, these, uh, these problems. Um, it's the Igeris Temanu, among other things. If you want to understand the Jewish view of Christianity and Islam, you can't without having studied this. Rambam, it's, this is here where he explains, and I've been quoting this a lot when I talk about Christianity and Islam, he explains his views on both, both, uh, both religions. He, um, he also has a section in the letter where he expresses strong reservations about writing the letter in the first place. He says, you realize that just my writing this letter endangers you and me. Because the Rambam living in Egypt and the Yemenite Jews living where they do are all under Arabic, under Muslim regimes. That uh, they're not exactly Christians, but they're also not our best friends either. And if they catch, uh, and, and letters, to realize, and we're so, we're so jaded nowadays, and the written word is as shallow and meaningless as a text message that comes to you as quickly as you delete it. But the uh, once upon a time, somebody wrote a letter and everybody read it and it had consequence, and you could be killed if you wrote anything that was perceived as seditious or even threatening. So he said, I write this, there's danger, but he concludes, he understands there's a great need, the Yemenite community needs the Rambam's guidance, and he concludes by quoting Chazal, Shluchei mitzvos enam nizokim. People who are messengers doing mitzvos won't be injured. So since I'm doing a mitzvah and you're gonna do a mitzvah and reading this, uh, we'll be okay. The letter has a galvanizing effect on them. They are immensely inspired. You're talking about a community of great Yira Shemaim uh, who lacked for guidance, and the Rambam changes their lives. They ultimately come to get all of the Rambam's works, and I think the following can be said about, we're gonna talk more about the development of the Yemenite community over the centuries, but I, I would assert this, more than any other community of Jews, it could be said about the Yemenites that they do follow one source more than anybody else, and that's clearly the Rambam. Does that make sense, what I just said? Meaning, uh, let's say for Ashkenazi Jews, and for many Asfari Jews, frankly, the Mishnah Baruch is considered the Posek Acharon, the final authoritative Posek. Uh, he's huge. And yet, there's a long, long, long list of halachos that we don't, that he paskins that we don't hold by, Mishnah Baruch. Because generally, we, in halacha, we don't hold by one figure. We hold by the consensus view, which is often variegated. But the Ammonites, more, more often than not, hold by the Rambam. It's much more straightforward as they, as they bring it down. And even then, it's not 100%, but, it's, but, but fairly, fairly consistently. That's the halachic process. We go with the rov deos. We go with the post That thing hasn't been how do we know on certain issues? It's not true what you're saying. 
we, I mean, th- there is absolutely shoftim b'shoftim. It's a mitzvah d'irais to listen to the rabbanim in our day. You need live poetry to be able to determine a lot of things that can't be. You can't just look no, up a need, book. You need poetry, rabbi, but you don't need a majority. No, you, but you need this this amorphous thing called consensus, where if somebody, let's say, th- there's an established accepted view on any given issue, and somebody would would stick his neck out and say otherwise. He has to have. He has to be a subs- substantial scholar. Somebody, somebody of, of dimension. It can't just be a small person. So, um, so the Rambam, for example, uh, as we say, many of the of even though today we'll talk about the de- development of the Yemenite community into three distinct communities, almost all of them follow the Rambam almost to the letter. For, for example, quoting quoting the Rambam in Hilchos Tefillah. Um, this is indeed how they paskin. We lay out our mats on the ground to sit on. In the cities of Edom, referring to the other Jews northward, uh, they sit in chairs. But we follow the Rambam. That's, 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 that's how they did. And, and, and uh, to some degree, oh, this, they, they also have varied this over the years too. Now they, they generally sit in chairs too, ironically. Rambam also intercedes since he has connections, um, political connections. He's able to intercede. And because of his uh, connections, he's able to um, help the Jews and alleviate their persecution. Uh, so till today, the Yemenites uh, feel that they owe, they owe a huge debt to the Rambam. The Rambam argue, arguably does have a magnum opus. We call it the Mishneh Torah. He names the Mishneh Torah after Sefer Devarim. Mishneh Torah, because Moshe in Sefer Devarim repeats the Torah, goes over. So um, it's also, for, anybody know an alternate name for the Mishneh Torah? Yad Chazaka. Strong arm. Why Yad Chazaka? Yad is 14, and it's divided into 14 sections. And then there's even another name, which I heard, which would be don't use, but it's uh, something that will be named after it, rather. Okay. So he compiles it a few years later, uh, around 1180. One of the most famous points in the Mishnah Torah as a halachic book, it's unusual, Rambam doesn't cite his sources. No footnotes. And um, one of the options is that we're not entirely sure, even though Rambam says it very persuasively, how he gets his halachos. And for people of the book who were so reluctant to commit any of our oral tradition to writing, and then when we finally went around to committing our oral tradition to writing, the most important question that you see asked in the pages of the Gemara, of course, is Minale, Minayin. Where do you know that from? Cite your source. Is that a Pasuk? Is that a Svara? Where do you have it? Is that Bryce somewhere? So for the Rambam to come along, and Rambam, we're going to see, had many detractors, many critics. For the Rambam to come along and simply say, this is the way it is, um, <laughs> struck them as the height of chutzpah. He himself will write later that he regrets not including sources, that if he would rewrite it, he would have included them. His son... Uh, a great, a great uh, Talmud Chacham, Rav Avram, then the son of the Rambam, actually wrote a book with all the sources, and we lost it. Others, the real, much of the job of what's called the Nose Kalim, the carriers, the arms, the, 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 the weapons bearers, the vessel bearers, like for example, the Levim were the Nose Kalim in the Mishkan, so they're the Nose Kalim around the, around the, the text of the Rambam. 
um, will indeed take up this, this, uh, this enterprise of finding where the Rambam gets his laws from. So you look at the Kesef Mishnah, the Magid Mishnah, and then they, they, they explain <coughs> what his sources are. They also clarify his views. Um, one of the other points of criticism is the whole notion of codifying now it's been done before. We saw that Bahad was, do, was, was involved in the business of codifying. The Rift certainly was involved in this. But the Rambam was so original, almost to, to an untrained eye, brash. How, how could he? And he reformulated. Had, do you realize the Rambam has his own totally novel organization? He, it's, he took the entire Gans Taira, and reformulated and put it in his own order and incredibly organized logical order, but that was new. And people said, you know, you can't do this. You take law, you take the halacha, which is by definition open, elastic, has to be applied and reapplied in different places, in different times, uh, in different circumstances, depending on the individual. And you set down a generic code, it loses its vibrancy, you freeze it. Uh, we know that the verbal masorah had a nuance. And it's, response, it's responsive to, to complexities of life. And the formal word, the written word, excuse me, is rigid. Rambam, though, we know, in history, history has uh, certainly sustained him, Rambam's different. He can write a code of law, and somehow, somehow the law retains its openness, its vibrancy, its relevance. Um, this is reflected probably the best way of, of, of making this argument that the Rambam is different, he rises above all of the problems, is um, it is probably, after our, our primary earlier books, probably the most essential book in all of Judaism. It is the one that has inspired more commentaries. And pay attention, when we get later in the spring, when we get to the modern era, we're going to meet a whole host of Gedolim, one after the other after the other, their own magnum opus was written about the Atchazaka. Why if Rav Chaim Brister and the Rav Baruch Berlevitz wrote their great books and the, and Rav Meir Simcha Dvinsk wrote his own or Sameach and countless others, the Rav Chaver Gaon and you know, why then let's say a couple generations later would Rav Shach write his own masterwork on the same book? Unless you'd want to say that this book was a wonder. And that's exactly what we see. It was clearly open and it was, it was uh, engaging enough to become the discussion, if you want to discuss the ongoing law, the ongoing halacha and the, the evolution of Torah, this is our linchpin. This, this is what organizes us. It's certainly one of the most, if not the most authoritative and studied codes of all halacha, certainly a precedent for the, Mishnah, for, for the, um, for the Shulchan Aruch. And as I mentioned before, uh, the Shulchan Aruch often wholesale simply lifts the wording in the Rambam and copies it in a, in a separate organization, but clearly connected. Part um, of the Yad Chazaka, often published together, is another work that we consider the Sefer HaMitzvos, which is um, not the first time that the mitzvahs were enumerated. Remember, the Talmud never does this. We know that there are 613. We don't know exactly what those 613 are, and the Rambam counts them out. It's extremely, uh, not controversial, but it's widely discussed because the Rambam seems to leave at least one out to count them up, and so that's a huge discussion in the post-game. Well, not exactly. Not my topic right now. If you're interested, send me an email. 
I'll, get, I'll, I'll alert you to some, to some great sources on this. And, and well, if he doesn't include that, well, how does he include it? He doesn't count the midst of Yeshua Aretz, but what is that? Is Eretz Yisrael not a mitzvah deraisa? Clearly it must be. Lots and lots of discussion over what he counts, what he doesn't count. Um, it's considered by many to be the definitive enumeration of the Tariq mitzvos. It's the basis of the Sefer Mitzvot that the great Sefer Chino will write his uh, world-famous commentary on the 613. With, with additions from the Rambam. Also true, also true, but the Rambam's the basis. I'm gonna just cite, how do you, how do you start citing the Rambam? We could be here all, all uh, decade and not finish it, but I'll give you some of the highlights in uh, Mitzvah number 290, a negative Mitzvah, Lavim 290, Rambam writes that it's better to acquit a thousand guilty men than it is to put a single innocent man to death. It's certainly all based on Chazal. That idea, familiar idea? Yeah. Certainly makes sense to us. Would be codified in the 18th century British law that they call the Blackstone Foundation. And you can find variations in virtually every single Western uh, civil, civil law uh, legal code in the world till today. And they trace it back to the Rambam's formulation. Uh, what the Christian would plagiarize and call their golden rule or the golden mean, Rambam articulates in, in his Shmone Prokim, which is his comment, which is his introduction to his, in, in Pirkei Avos. Um, Rambam also adds, he, he has, he has a um, qualification there. He says, when we seek the golden mean, that means that we want to be moderate. We, we never want to go to the extreme of uh, between any two midos, midos. He says, with, when you consider two polar opposite midos, usually we want to be closer to one than the other, meaning we never want to go right smack dab in the middle. If you're talking, for example, about extreme miserliness versus extreme generosity, clearly we should be neither. But if you had the air, be more generous than miserly. And almost all Midos break down like that, where you want to be closer to one side than the other, with two exceptions. Two times in life, you should be an extremist. You should know this. This is, this is basic Judaism 101. What are the two areas in life that you must be an extremist? Go. Anger and pride. Anger and pride. You should be extremely angry and extremely arrogant. So Not. The opposite of that. Right, the opposite. Right? <laughs> no excuse. Anger, we know that Gemara tells us is like a Vodazara, and the Rambam brings this down, the Halacha as well. In Hilchos Matanos Lanim, Rambam, I'm just giving you some highlights of different sections of the Rambam. Hilchos Matanos Lanim, uh, which is the Mishnah Torah, he sets eight hierarchies of giving tzedakah, also quite famously. The highest being? Right. In, uh, anonymously, too. Enabling a person to sustain themselves. Uh, what did we say? And when I was back in Berkeley, we used to say it like this uh, Teach a man, uh, give a man a fish he eats for the day, teach a man a fish he eats for a lifetime. And then all the way down, all with an eye towards human dignity and anonymity as best you can, and trying to, as best you can, give in, in a L'Shem Shemayim fashion. Yeah. Is that above yourself, though? Because uh, I thought there was a thing for, for giving Sadaka that if, if you were going It's also true. All, all have to be factored in. No, the highest, highest is, to, is to enable a person to be self-sufficient. And the last bit I'm going to quote is um, in Sefer Malachim, also in the Mishnah Torah. Rambam writes about the end of days. Apparently, that's in, that's that's very topical these days. Rabbi Shushan is teaching on the on the topic. Um, he says the Chachamim and the Nevim didn't foresee the days of the Mashiach to be a time when the Jews would rule the world or would suppress the nations. 
It's not a time when we're going to be elevated over all the other nations either. It's not a time, contrary to the, uh, to the Muslim uh, promises of, of, uh, of all those virgins in the afterlife, he says it's not a time that we're going to eat and drink and be merry. He says the end of days specifically is a time where we're going to have free time, enough to be able to learn Torah and delve into its wisdom. And that's our greatest aspiration. And it's a, it's a democratic situation so far as everybody will have access. Uh, those who took advantage of Olam Hazet to develop themselves will have greater access because they're going to be more qualified for the job, but it's not elitist. Uh, the final work that I'm going to talk about in the Rambam is the Mornavuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed, which is by far the most controversial. Yes. One of the most important books of Jewish philosophy, which is less of a significant statement than it may sound like, because Jewish Judaism has never been that philosophical, and philosophy is a big deal in these days, as we talked about, beginning from the time of Rav Sa'adji Gaon, who wrote the first classic work of Jewish philosophy, but that's going to wane. From the time of the Rishonim, and certainly the last few hundred years, um, we mentioned this before a lot too, Jews particularly, but the world in general doesn't really care about why. Philosophy departments in most universities are, exist because they should, not because there's a demand for them. Um, and philosophy today, we, we ask much less why, and we're more interested in how much. That's, that's more what, what fascinates people. Um, and and um, so, so philosophy is not, been, even though people might claim to be philosophical, they don't delve as, as profoundly as once upon a time they used to. Uh, and, and certainly Rambam's day, the world was philosophical and the Jews absolutely followed in line and there was a crisis. Jews were assimilating and the Karaites attracted people and uh, the Muslims attracted people and there was a need to address deep ideas of philosophy from a Torah perspective and the Rambam does just that. Now, originally the... What was the reason for the book? One of his colleagues, Rav Ibn Enkin, had asked the Rambam, please, you, you're, the, you're the only one who can do this. You need to address your generation's ideological anxieties. They have questions. They have issues. And Rambam rose to it, and the result was the Guide to the Perplexed. What is the Guide to the Perplexed? It's usually divided, it's divided into three sections, also written in Arabic, as many of the great works were in this period. Um, in it, he explains Tami Mitzvos. That's in the third parak. He has a long section on Nevuah, on Sefer Eo, on Meisim um, um, and and fundamental questions. Much of which, I, if you ever go through it, you'll you'll see. I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Are questions that generally don't come up for us today. People, modern students, often really get really excited about some of the modern Nevuchim, and often find it dull. It just doesn't speak to them. Once upon a time, this is where, the, this is where our, our ancestors were holding. This is what fascinated them. Uh, it was clearly the dominant philosophy was Aristotle's. Um, in fact, the Rambam was not the first to write the Jewish view of Aristotelian thought. Um, the Muslims and the, Christian, and the Christians had similar problems going on, and they had their own equivalents of the Mornavuchim. So, for example... Ibn Rashid wrote Averos, uh, not Averas, but, uh, but the, Averos, the, um, which is the Muslim equivalent, uh, addressing Aristotelian thought from a Muslim perspective. Um, 
Thomas Aquinas. He does this before the Rambam. After the Vodnor Ruchim, Thomas Aquinas um, writes the Christian version, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, it's his version, for example, that becomes the definitive theology for them. It's one of the reasons why the church will later denounce Galileo. Um, Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, pay attention to this, refers to the Rambam as Rabbi Moshe, as my teacher. And please note the deep irony of this and what Aquinas will do to the Jews uh, and the influence they'll have uh, in, 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 in the most ironic, subversive way on Klal Yisrael, but I'll leave that out there. We'll, 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 you'll see what I'm talking about in a, in a couple of weeks. We'll get, not even, in, 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 in a few days, we'll, we'll come around and, and tell the story of how this, how this affects us. Um, mm-mm, mm-mm. So famous, I don't have it here, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to just say it, it's a very famous book, and I'm sure, I'm sure uh, Elon will tell us in a moment. Thomas Aquinas is equivalent of the Mornavuchim. Now, the book is published, and it makes quite a storm, and the harshest criticism comes from Bavel. Out in Bavel, they're not taking so kindly to the idea that their prominence has long since declined and that their, their time has passed and that the Jews of the world doesn't pay attention. Um, they're marginalized. Say it again? Yeah, something generic like that. Okay. It's the Christian formulation of Aristotelian philosophy. Okay. So the current Gaon of Bavel was Rav Shmuel ben Eli, and he's not happy with Rambam. See, the Rambam had criticized Bavel. He said they're not, it's no longer Bavel of old. Rav Hai Gaon was the last Gadol to emerge from Bavel in the Rambam's view, and um, he thought that they didn't have the authority and nor, did, nor really the competence as Torah scholars. And Rav Shmuel ben Eli takes this personally, and he responds, tit for tat. He accuses Rambam as, of being a heretic. He says the Rambam himself espouses rationalist views of the world. He's too beholden to Aristotle. That's the center of the whole debate. Um, what's rationalist? He lists the following. Rambam's views of angels. Uh, he, he, he renders them not as supernatural beings, but in very, very this-worldly terms. Rambam describes miracles. He says they're really not miracles. They're only miracles from our perspective, but each can be explained away in this. When we say rational, we're talking about this-worldly kinds of terms. Hold the thought. Uh, Rambam's view on prophecy, on triasamesim, on olam haba. Rambam says that the um, end of days will not be unlike the, um, our world, except there'll be peace and give free time to be able to sit in the Torah, like we just said. Um, that's in contrast with probably a majority view that will be later articulated by the Ramban. This is how we're going to end our class here when we talk about the end of days. Um, very much in the here and now, and uh, they would call him a heretic and accuse him of denying the Torah. Um, even though it's unfair, because if you look back, not even that far, if you look back in Rambam's own anima means, you see clearly he espouses the belief in Mashiach, and, and so on. His view is much more, uh, much more complex and easily misunderstood. But his critics, his critics don't see that. 
Uh, Rav Shmuel Ben Eli is joined with critics from around the world, and this is an all-star team. These are not small names. We learn all these Sfarim, even though the Rambam so clearly eclipses all of these, but these are all huge names. The Ramah, the Yad Ramah, Rav Abulafi of Toledo in Spain, Rav Daniel Habavli of Damascus, Rav Shimshon Bishant, who we met yesterday, one of the Balitos, one of the, the third, arguably the third greatest of all the Balitosifos, also have their criticisms for the Rambam. I'm introducing this conflict now. Um, you should be aware, and we're going to talk, we're going to trace this now. Over the next hundred years, uh, it's, going to, it's going to be one of the, if not the most divisive issue in the Jewish world, to the point that they burned the Rambam's books in the streets in Paris. And uh, it's shocking to us. Um, I think Barak might have been first, and then, and then Arya. But in, in uh, Yisrael Torah, uh, he, he talks about angels. But yes, he does. He doesn't give it. Uh, he doesn't speak physically about them. He right. Gives the, he gives uh, more of a of an otherworldly yeah. dimension to them. Absolutely. So the Rambam is complex. Secret. That's right. That's what his defenders will point out too. Correct. Are you? How would the Rambam have something like he does too. It's one of his 13 principles of belief that you have to believe in the Kriyas Amesim. So the critics said that he... Uh, if you want, he, he wrote his actual book on that and uh, he actually explains this. And he, he has a way of going around which is not physical or interaction. He, he understands a lot of these things as metaphorical. Magic is metaphorical. Um, for example, um, even though clearly the Gemara distinguishes between slate of hand and, uh, and the occult and sorcery, the Rambam simply explains those two categories as slate of hand, um, less, lesser magic, and more, more effective magic. Uh, in other words, slate of hand, more effective trickery. Uh, it goes so far during the Rambam's life, lifetime that they report him to the Dominicans in, um, in the French Inquisition, which is just emerging now, uh, reporting that it contains anti-Christian blasphemies, trying to get the Rambam in trouble. Now, the Rambam corresponded with many people. This will, this will blow up and, be, and will um, hound the Rambam in his final years. He, we know that he experienced profound pain privately at all these accusations, and in public, he never once responds. Further, we understand they're great figures and they're great figures. The Rambam was such an anav. Any public defense, from his perspective, would have been a show of gaiva. He was not interested. He did what he did, L'shem Shemaim, and he never reacts. Others do react. His son, Rav Avram, rises to his defense. Rav Ibn Emkin, who had asked for the whole book to begin with, and others defend him, and will continue doing so through history. Uh, till today, it's an issue that people study. They say that all Rambam was doing was explaining Torah in terms, in, in the terms of his generation's philosophical lexicon that they could understand. Um, others have done similarly, right? The Rav Sajigon had also done that for his generation, and we'll see others will do that later. Rav Simshimafal Hirsch was a master of that in, in, in Germany in the 19th century. Um, the Rugger Trevor Gaon in the 20th century. Oh, it's, he's, he, he's, he's the subject of great stories. Stick, stick with me and you'll be amazed at the Rugged Shavar Gaon. He lived also, he was a contemporary of our host, of Rav Merzim of Dvinsk in Dvinsk. These two towers, giants, giant, gigantic Torah figures in, in this tiny village of Dvinsk. What's that? 
He wasn't in Rogatovo? No, it, that's where he was from, but he was in, he lived out his life in Dvinsk. In any case, in any case, one of his one of the Rogatchevs' great accomplishments, he was a genius. Uh, he he'll write a commentary on the Mordechai, tracing each of the, the philosophical concepts and finding sources for them in the Talmud and the Midrash. Lest anybody think the Rambam made it up. In Hilchos Sanhedrin, Rambam writes, and part of this certainly is a re, is a retort to his critics. It's a received tradition that in the future, in Tiveria, that's where the Tchiasamesim will begin. In Tiveria? Yeah. And from there, they're going to continue going down to the base of Mikdash. But the Tchiasamesim will begin in Tiveria. Others bring this tradition. I mentioned this when I think half of the half people might have been asleep on the bus, but we were driving through Tiveria, that there was this view. Um, indeed, Rambam dies in Cairo, and tradition has it that he's buried in Tiveria. All kinds of stories how that happened. They send the camel, and the camel uh, simply went on its own and was able to stop in Tiveria. Others say it was deliberate and calibrated. Um, but it suggests the fact that he's buried in Tiveria, supporting this idea of Trias Amesim, almost like he had the last word against his opponents by affirming that there is a concept, because why else would he want to be buried in, 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 uh, in Tiveria? Certainly it's one of the 13 main principles of Amuna. His future generations, his descendants remain in Egypt. The position that they assume is the leader called the Nagid. Nagid was the figurehead. Um, the two most famous that we'll hear about, we'll hear from some of his descendants, um, but his son Rav Avraham, um, and then his grandson is Rav David, who lived from 1212 to 1300. Uh, interesting footnote on Rav David, then uh, this grandson of the Rambam. He wrote a book called the Drashos and Midrash that cites the Zohar in a period before Rav Moshe de Leon published the Zohar, indicating the Zohar was clearly known about before its initial publication at the end of the 13th century. I'm going to mention a great towering figure who any other time would have been the Gadol Hador in the days of the Rambam. He, uh, he was a Gadol Hador, certainly. Um, he certainly, um, the reason why it's very relevant to talk about the Raivid, um, this is another Raivid that we're going to meet, the Raivid in the context of the Rambam is that arguably of the different Machlokos Rishonim that, will, that one hears about, let's say as you go about your learning and you'll hear about famous arguments that the Rishonim have, among the most famous are between the Rambam and the Raivid. Now there are three Rishonim referred to as the Raivid, usually Rav Avram ben David or some, or some variation. We met one of them, the first one was the author of the Sefer Kabbalah, the history uh, that, was, that died on Kiddush Hashem. The second one was actually, we'll, we'll meet right now um, briefly. Um, he is, um, that is his father-in-law. This Raivid's father-in-law. But this is the third Raivid, and some would say maybe the most famous. He's from Pousquier in South France. His dates are 1125 to 1198. So he was older than the Rambam. And a little bit about the Raivid. Binyamin Mitudela, the traveler, visits him in 1165. And he said he was amazed. Um, a, the Raivid was very wealthy, and he lived a completely simple lifestyle, belying his wealth. 
You'd never know that he was as wealthy as he was. He didn't take pleasure from it. He was incredibly generous, supported most of the Gedoli, most of the uh, Talmidim in the city. Students flocked to learn with him. In one episode, we know the Ravid would be imprisoned on a false charge. Um, but here's an unusual story. We're not going to hear this one so much in the Middle Ages. Um, he was ransomed by a certain Count Roger II, who's one of the few righteous non-Jews, Chassidei Umos Olam, during these otherwise pretty bleak times. I mention this because I want to try to give you as um, complex and, and accurate a picture of these times. These times are times of bitter persecution and occasional, uh, occasional virtue. So sometimes the going were nice to us. It wasn't uniformly bleak. One of the Ravid's great works is a defense. Remember the riff? Do we have a riff handy? Do we have a Gemara handy? No. Picture the page of the riff. They're, they're, the, the riff is one of the first of the Rishonim. Great commentaries are written on the riff. One of them, one of the, one of the primary Rishonim, is the Baal HaMaor that was written by Rav Zrachi HaLevi around the same time. He was actually contemporary of, of the Ravid's. Almost, they were born the same year. Um, the Balamor was written when he was 19. And the Balamor is one of the sharpest critics of the riff. And um, people were shocked. Even though the Balamor is a great scholar and one of the great Rishonim, but who could take on the riff? And the Ravid wrote a defense. He, def- he, he criticized the Balamor and defended the riff against his attack. Against his attacks. Um, even the Balamor himself is apologetic for, uh, for, for criticizing such a giant as the Rif, but you know, he was entitled to. That's the spirit of, of uh, Torah inquiry, is uh, sometimes we have arguments. Um, the Ramban, a uh, hundred years later, the Ramban will write his own defense of the Rif against the Balamor, and he calls his commentary Milchemes Hashem, Hashem's own war, right, in defending the Rif against the Balamor. Okay. Another great accomplishment um, is the Ravid, really probably his most famous, the Ravid has his Hasagos, his commentary on the Mishnah Torah. And here's the issue, and this is probably the most important thing as we conclude our discussion today on the Rambam. The Rambam, with all the criticism and the burning books and the controversy, the Rambam, from this point, hadn't just uh, captivated the Yemenite Jewish community. The Rambam, at this point, was prominent in the world. And there was actually, we got to the point that, that many of his Pisgah halacha, if not most, had become the de- definitive um, halachos for most of the Jews in the world. And the Ravid said, that's a problem. As great as the Rambam was, he had issues with a lot of his Pesach halacha. And he says, we don't pass it across the board like one person. He said, we shouldn't be influenced by the Rambam. He writes, Bain Yamin small." Whether, you know, he says right is left and left is right, referring to a, a lashon of a pasuk. So he writes his asagos, where he criticizes the Rambam. It's very, very brief. We, we did one in Gemara uh, on the previous chapter. I mentioned, we, we, did, a, we did a short rive there. Um, he criticizes the lack of proofs and sources in the Rambam. It itself is very brief. He usually starts his comment with Aleph, Aleph, Amar Avraham, referring to himself. Um, and he'll take him on. And often his view is the accepted view against the Rambam. Um, it's accepted in, in halacha that where the, right, the Ravid doesn't disagree with the Rambam, usually it means he affirms the Rambam's psaq. He was that careful. Um, often he'll compliment the Rambam's conclusions and then you know for sure. I'll just give you a taste of some of the famous arguments between the two. In one area, 
Rambam says an inadvertent apicorus, heretic, Rambam Paskins is still inadvertent meaning a tinot shenishba. Like today, we have a lot of these people. They don't know anything. They're apicorusim, but they don't realize apicorusim. They don't know that much. Rambam says such a person is still an apicorus. Ein lo chelik is no portion of the world to come. Right. Rambam says still an apicorus. Ein lo chelik The Ravid disagrees. He says if the mistake is l'shem shemaim, he's not an apicorus. The Rambam, the Ravid is more more moderate, and um, certainly the Chazonish. Uh, spins on this and says today's apikorsim, today's tinot shenishba are in a different category. Our, our approach to them is with kishrei ava. We have to uh, greet them with, with, with binds of love. The Rambam elsewhere argues that a person who claims that Hashem has a body is a heretic. The Ravid argues, he says, the belief is obviously wrong, but the person is not a heretic. Rambam says, Korban Pesach is, is puzzle if it's roasted without the Gita Nosha, without the sciatic nerve. The Ravid says the Korban Pesach is puzzle if it's roasted with the sciatic nerve. This is one of those arguments that you can't be Yotzekolodeos. You're either going to go with the Ravid or the Rambam. Um, the Rambam puts one string of blue of Tcheles in his tzitzit. Not that they had Tcheles back in those days, but in theory, if there was Tcheles, he only would add one string. The Ravid adds two strings. Many, oh, go look it up. I'm giving you, I'm giving you a taste. Go look it up. Um, the Ravid is not done there. I'll give one, one last bit. The Ravid was a Kabbalist. He'd studied with his father-in-law, the second Ravid, and he transmits Kabbalah. He's part of the transmission of Kabbalah to his son. His son was a great figure, too, named Rav Yitzchak Sagi Nahor, which is the euphemism for blind man. And indeed, he was a blind man. Um, and it's said about Rav Yitzchak, the son of the Ravid, that it was under him that Kabbalah became prominent for the first time since the days of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And this is around the time the Zohar is emerging, around that period, but there are, others, there are other traditions of Kabbalah, not just the Zohar. Um, we have from the, the Rekanati tells us that all three of them, meaning the second Ravid, the, 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 the third Ravid, who we've just been focused on, and then his son Rav Yitzchak, all learned from Eliyahu Navi. That's that was their that was their their primary source. Um, the Ravid also his students teach the Ramban. I'm trying to keep track of who's who and how the connectedness in the in the Masoira. Um, Ravid also has. Um, other students who teach, who, who uh, his students are of Mayor of Trinkatai, um, who is, um, whose son was another teacher of the Ramban, and whose great-grandson is one of my heroes, the Kaftor Veferach Rav Astoria Parchi. So if you're uh, trying to trace how everybody's interconnected, um, tomorrow we're going to go, um, we're going to continue talking about the Crusades, um, France, Britain, and, um, and then they're going to burn a bunch of the Rambam's books.